What's the connection between Stonehenge, Ireland, robots, and laser beams that both melt flesh and conjure bugs and snakes from a human body? Well, we're going to find that out tonight because we watched Halloween 3, Tommy Lee Wallace's horror cult masterpiece from 1982. Midnight Flicks, a cinematic podcast dedicated to movies that are best watched under cover of darkness. I am one of your hosts, Adam Walker, and joining me on this cinematic expedition is Pat Mitchell. Hey, Pat. How you doing tonight? I'm great. How are you tonight? Fantastic. Had a busy, busy day. Went to Costco, loaded, <laughs> up, on, loaded up on some household goods. I like that Costco really meets everybody's fucking needs. Cause I, uh, as a father of a two year old go to Costco regularly to get on diaper runs and baby food runs and stuff. Yeah. But I like the idea that Costco is just in every man's territory. Every race, creed, religion is, uh, demographic is was represented there tonight it's true it's true it, you get like five pounds of mayo and like uh i always get like their their bourbon and some diapers and i'm I get the fuck out of there because if there's one thing that we can all agree on we all love savings <laughs> and hoarding for a pending apocalypse that is just uh, seemingly right around every corner. Right around the corner these days. Always been, but... Anyways. Okay. So, I uh, I know I talked to you about this already, and it seems like you watched this movie yourself recently, but um, as far as good movies go, I'll go ahead and uh, hand it off to you before I state my piece. What, uh, what have you yeah. been seeing lately? Yeah, I thought... If you don't mind, um, I recently put together like a top 10 list. Yeah, I saw um, that. Please do. I'm terrible about that. So if you would like to maybe go down your list. I will slam through it uh, super quickly. So these are my favorite movies of 2019. I caught up on a few choice cuts that I'd never got around to seeing. So 
no particular order because I, I can never order these things, especially when they're from all different genres. Um, Dr. Sleep, uh, just super fucking good. I loved the book. I love both his books and it just uh, bridges that gap between uh, Kubrick and, and King that I never thought could be bridged because the, there are two maniacs that, that never seem to be able to be on the same page. But right. Mike Flanagan really pulls it together. He does, he does an excellent job. Um, this German movie called Hagazusa right. um, was mind-bending. I watched it on my laptop in the bedroom in complete darkness and was genuinely like, I, it made me feel like fucking gross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like the darkest, most occult shit I think I've seen. It, it's probably of the decade. It's up there with like hereditary in terms of just making you just feel uneasy and nice. unsafe, like in a director's hands. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that that movie I've definitely been made aware of. Don't really know much about it. I know you said it kind of gave you um, a vibe similar to The Witch also. Yeah, it's being called like Germany's answer to The Witch, but um, thematically it has some, some of the same stuff, only it, it just goes in a much darker place, I feel like. Yeah. Um, I threw Lords of Chaos on there, which is that the obviously the the Mayhem movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Rory Culkin's like one of my favorite. Uh, well, he's easily the most talented Culkin, but I, I just love him in general. He does a lot of interest. He has a lot of interesting role choices in movies, and and um, he's excellent in Lords of Chaos. Um, Peanut Butter Falcon is just like checks every box of shit that I like. Like one of my favorite subgenres is an American road movie, mm-hmm. um, a la like um, Midnight Run or Rain Man. So it's it's like an American road movie. It's a feel good movie, and it has like a bunch of wrestling, pro, professional wrestling worship in it. So it Check, checks off a lot of boxes. Yeah, it is yeah. pretty much everything I look for. Yeah. Uh, Toy Story Four, which I've watched with. Um, my two-year-old probably like a thousand times. Uh, she loves it. And it makes me cry like every time because <laughs> it's like the final one in the saga. So it wraps everything up nicely. Mm-hmm. Um, the lighthouse, uh, Robert Eggers, um, follow up to the witch. Uh, we talked about it briefly, but just super Lovecraftian and, and forlorn and, and, black and white and sludgy and great. Um, I watched Uncut Gems, which <laughs> you had texted me about. I guess we could talk about Uncut Gems here briefly, but yeah, uh, a brief, uh, the only thing I have to say about it is every fucking scene is dialed up to 11 and either starts or ends or the whole sequence is yelling. So it either starts with yelling and ends or ends with yelling or is just an entire sequence of yelling and Sandler <laughs> is just a goddamn uh, madman in it. Yeah. So I don't, is that the end of your list? Uh, I've got three more after that. So let me, I'll go through the three and then we could double back around to uncut. Yeah, Gems. exactly. That's what I was thinking. Cause that uncut gems is the movie that I wanted to talk about. Um, specifically, specifically. So go ahead and finish cool. your list and we'll come. The up. other three were a hidden life. Um, I'm just a Terrence Malick 
a sucker and he every three years he puts out like a three hour uh, fucking epic on the human condition and this one takes place during world war ii and i saw it with my mom and we both fucking loved it um so i threw that on there uh once upon a time in hollywood uh i saw it in theaters i fucking loved it i love tarantino's new like alternative history thing that he's got going on where he takes like a piece of true history and then like changes the ending of it i think that's i just fucking loved it um and then parasite uh i threw on there and uh our mutual friend kyle told me to to see it without looking up anything about it and which is the the truest thing that you could say about that movie and it just fucking completely floored me i don't even know what genre that movie is to be honest, but, um, let's double back around to uncut gems though, for a second. Go ahead. Well, yeah, uh, I will make a couple of other points about that list just, uh, for my part, um, for one reason or another, I am kind of out of the loop with a lot of them. And, uh, there's definitely some really good stuff on there that I mean in the check off. So, uh, the one exception I will make is that Lords of chaos movie is mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I ever want to watch that. And I'm, but hearing you talk about it and give praise to Rory Culkin, um, who's honestly his, his, whatever he's done, I'm, I'm pretty um, ignorant of. So I don't know what kind of salt he really has as an actor. I will say that the trailer I saw for the movie and it's particular take on that history um doesn't suit me well <laughs> because sure. coming from sure. um a background of playing that kind of music and being influenced and being pretty well versed <laughs> and how all of that panned out um uh i do have I do take issue with some of it, but I'm not going to write it off completely. And I think you talking about it just now maybe gave me a little more uh, exception to check on it. So I will. And I'm only, I'm only, I'm familiar with the mayhem story yeah, and uh, the dead suicide mm-hmm. thing. And, um, you're on, uh, uh, Rory Culkin plays Euronymous. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it is accurate to that story because they are just a bunch of fucking lying dweeb teenagers sure. who made up a lot of this shit. Yeah. So the movie does a good job of like uh, really building up some of these lies as to how they told them. But at the end of the day, it's, it's never as grandiose as any of their stories make any of the shit out to be. And I think they yeah. do a good job of bridging it between just being kind of teenage lies and real shit that happened like the church burnings and that, that kind of stuff. Totally. Totally. Um, okay. So that out of the way, let's, uh, let's circle back to uncut gems. (laughs) Yeah. Holy shit. That movie was stressful to watch. But when I say that, I mean that in a good way, like that movie throughout the entirety it was basically like it condensed like the feeling you got from watching breaking bad all into a movie where you're just constantly thinking what the fuck is happening like this you're so they simultaneously make 
Sandler's character, completely irritating and unsympathetic, but also you kind of feel for the guy and at least for me. And then of course, you know, you, you're kind of gunning for him there towards the end. And, um, so that's, <laughs> there's, there's a term that my partner's mom uses in reference to movies that I feel is kind of apt, but she uses it in a way where she's like kind of pissed, but it was emotionally manipulative. <laughs> It wasn't, a, I feel like it was an emotionally manipulative movie in a lot of ways, but in a way that like was interesting and, and engaging. And like you were saying, there's a lot of yelling. And when I was reading the, the, uh, the user and like, uh, watcher reviews on Rotten Tomatoes and, and IMDb, like one of those reviews was just lots of New York yelling. Yeah, <laughs> which is true. And just like you, it, it was like just like you said. I was like stressed out. <laughs> like but, it was the movie was over. I was like, I don't want to do anything now. I just want to go to bed. It was exhausting. Exactly. It was. It's an, It is a cinematic marathon, but not like in any other. It's a cinematic emotional marathon. Like you're just like fucking exhausted. Totally. And it's like, it's a two and a half hour movie. And, and <laughs> I'm even for movies that I really enjoy, I'm usually kind of cognizant, like, okay, you know, like let's maybe wrap it up. That movie flew by. I had no idea that it was as long as it was until it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel like two plus hours. It, it really doesn't. Um, that, that's the only thing I will say for it. I, I did lo- I did like it a lot, but it does not feel like it's runtime uh, whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I don't think. Yeah, and yeah, Adam Sandler. So I think I'm one of those people that I I don't I haven't seen a majority of movies he's done for a long time because I just have kind of kind of written him off as being probably shit. But I've always had a soft spot for him, not only as a comedic actor, but just as a com- as a comedian. And um, and I think fondly of movies like Happy Gilmore and these lowbrow comedy efforts he did early on. Like I actually yeah. really like them. They're like kind of like um, they're like uh, how should I say it? They're like comfort movies for me like i'll put on happy gilmore and it's still funny to me yes absolutely. And so to see him play a role like this <laughs> and do it so well like and i know he's done dramatic ish roles before like punch drunk love and things like that but like this is like to me it's just i'm i don't give a shit about the academy awards but if you want to use that as like some sort of like standard for what you know to gauge a person's talent or like an effort that they put into a film i would say that i feel like he's he would be an oscar contender for this movie but that's just me he did he did put together like just a just, he really came outside of himself outside of even a uh, punch drug love kind of dramatic role he like transformed completely <laughs> exactly into yeah. a maniac. It was, it was good to see. It was great to see. I, I loved seeing it. And, um, 
it, the another fun fact about the movie is I read that it was like fourth on the list of uh, f bombs, yeah. uh, the number of f bombs, mm-hmm. which coincides nicely with. Um, I'm, this is another one of those movies that it's a movie I regret showing my stepson. <laughs> oh, you you went with your stepson? This is on the list, which is hilarious. Um, <laughs> I showed it to him and he, he loved it, obviously. But the other movie on the list also has uh, Keith Stanfield um, on it. He plays like the recruiter in the movie mm-hmm. who, who brings... Um, who brings people to the, uh, to the pawn shop or whatever. Yeah. The broker. The, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the liaison between him and the basketball players, basically. Right. Um, and he was also in another movie that I regret going to the movie theaters with my stepson, which is sorry to bother you. Yes. Which he does amazing in both movies. And I he's love in both and he's great. Yeah. And my stepson recognizes him from get out. Yes. Um, he's in that obviously. as well. He's in that as well. But so yeah, now he, he, I've just seen like a bunch of his movies with my stepson, two of which were probably too uh, mature for a 14 year old, <laughs> but you got to get him in sometime. Got to get him in sometime. <laughs> so I don't know. That being said, uh, do you have anything else to add to Uncut Gems? No, I yeah. don't. We can, we can, uh, we can dive right into our topic of the day if you'd like. Fantastic. I would love to. And as I intimated to you via text, I was so excited to be able to watch this movie. Um, And as we've discussed, this movie is historically polarizing for certain reasons that we'll get into, obviously. Um, But in a lot of ways, I think in recent history is starting to get the credit that it's due. And that's that's a okay in my book. So, synopsis of the movie here, here it goes. Uh, Doctor Dan Chalice and Ellen Grimbridge travel to the small town of Santa Maria, California, where they discover that Silver Shamrock Novelties, a company ran by Conal Cochran, is attempting to use the mystic powers of the Stonehenge rocks to kill children when they all wear his mask and watch the Silver Shamrock commercial. So, yeah, so this is already, like, in that a nutso premise that basically, you know, somebody is using druidic power to kill children on Halloween. And, man, the cast, I'll tell you what, and, and you know, after I watch it again, it's like I, I learned all kinds of cool new things about the cast that I wasn't aware of that I didn't think about, you know, in previous times. But we've got a a, a horror all star as the leading role right here, yeah. a, a man that's going to pop up time and time again throughout um, episodes that we do for this podcast. And that would be Mr. Tom Atkins. Thrill me. Thrill me. Thrill me. Thrill me. Uh, He's unofficially, without your consent, on uh, the midnight flicks uh, Mount Rushmore. (laughs) Absolutely. No, that completely gets my consent. With your consent. Good. Absolutely. I I wouldn't bat an eye at putting him um, 
amongst that pantheon. And then there's uh, Stacy Nelkin who plays uh, Ellie Grimbridge. And so I don't know if maybe in your research you discovered this and, and um, I wasn't able to find any official word on it. But I think I heard from listening to How Did This Get Made or some other podcast that Stacy Nelkin had... Uh, um, a liaison or a relationship with either Rowan Polanski or um, um, Woody Allen when she was a young woman. Uh, whether that's true or not, I don't know. It really know. could go either way with those could, two. Could go either way. That is a possibility. Um, so that's, she is the leading lady in the movie. Uh, Dano here. Hurley plays the villain Conal Cochran, and we'll get into him. He's a another uh, uh, great actor. In fact, I would say aside from Tom Atkins, he he's probably my favorite actor in this movie. Um, and uh, Nancy Keys Ka- Keys uh, plays um, Dan Chalice's ex-wife Linda Chalice, and <laughs> she will come up uh, a number of times in other uh, Carpenter related projects. Mm-hmm. Um, Al Barry, uh, who plays Harry Grimbridge and uh, he's the, uh, the man that we meet in the beginning that's running away from the, from the androids or the, 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 the clones, Jonathan Terry, who played Starker and, uh, Mady Norman, who plays Nurse Agnes. So that's just kind of like a you know, rundown of some of the more prominent figures in the movie. Sure. Um, other than that, so this movie came out in 1982, as we said at the top, and it was uh, directed and written by Tommy Lee Wallace. Tommy Lee Wallace was uh, an associate of uh, John Carpenter. He actually started out, I think, as an art director for John Carpenter. And then Yeah, they were it seems like they were like buds, like maybe even childhood friends. Yes. Well um, I think also Tommy Lee Wallace was is a member of John Carpenter's band, the Coupe de Villes. That that only makes sense. They run uh the thickest fucking thieves. I mean, they're basically hand in hand with a bunch of different projects. I mean, he edited, he co-edited Halloween and the fog with, yeah. with Carpenter. And yeah, he's, he's like a Carpenter henchman. Yes, he is. He is within the uh, entourage of Carpenter. Yes. Uh, co-writers on the script was John Carpenter as well. And Nigel Neal, and he's got a whole interesting story that I'd like to get into at some point. Um, associate producers, Barry Bernardi, and producers John Carpenter again, and his his partner of the time Deborah Hill, who oh yeah yeah she and she helped produce it with Carpenter too yeah, and then some executive producers of note would be like Musafa Akkad, who if anybody knows anything about the Halloween you know series and mythology, especially the first two, you see his name and um, in the credits, and it's I remember like from the first time I saw those movies. I, that name always struck me as being, you know, very interesting. Like, and I always want to know what that guy's story is. And I guess there's a whole crazy story behind him and how he got into movie producing. And then I just associate whenever I see his name on the screen, I know I'm about to see a Halloween movie. Totally. Totally. Yes. <laughs> That's so about he, it. 
<laughs> he got involved with financially backing those movies um, uh, at some point. And it's a pretty crazy story um, that I remember uh, reading and hearing about. And then Dino De Laurentiis, who is a pretty well-known Italian producer who was associated with horror and thriller movies. And then uh, music by uh, another a-plus partnership, John Carpenter, once again, and Alan Haworth, mm-hmm. um, a distinct, distinct Haworth-Carpenter collaboration with this soundtrack. In fact, I feel like throughout it, there's some themes that I think they kind of uh, used in other movies. Um, yeah, it's excellent. And then just to round this off for any notable cast, Don Post was a special effects guy. He was the one that helped make all the masks. Um, and had a storied history uh, behind making Halloween masks himself. So there we go. Um, that's that's the synopsis and kind of a rundown of what's happening with with that movie before we really deep dive. And you said that you wanted to <laughs> go ahead and and uh, tie that off with uh, what we will hopefully be returning to again and again as long mm-hmm. as we can find the. F- the fodder and that would be uh siskel ebert and glenn danzig reviews of these movies yes um (laughs) so what did these guys have to say about this movie if you only got to see the monster for the last two minutes of the movie i thought that movie pretty much sucked (laughs) so unless you got to see the monster a lot in the movie well so interestingly enough right before we hopped on here i found a siskel and ebert uh piece from 1982 called the stinkers of 1982 which uh i watched it and it has the 1980s commercials in it and everything um it's crazy i'll send you the link to the website um but the stinkers of 1982 which include porkies which came out in 1982 yeah amityville 2 which was written by tommy lee wallace Mm mm-hmm um, starring Burt Young from uh, Rocky, mm-hmm. and Halloween Three was on there. Um, so a lot of Tommy Lee Wallace hate that year. Mm-hmm. And uh, Siskel, <laughs> in reference to Amityville Two, but just basically uh, lumping horror movies, uh, you know, as a whole, said uh, the people that make these movies have absolutely no shame, <laughs> <laughs> which is just fucking great and stupid um and the only thing um ebert said about halloween 3 was it's a boring slow-paced thriller about a, a plan to fry the brains of the nation's youth which of all the things you could say about it is not boring and slow-paced like maybe you don't like the movie and you don't like the idea of uh killing children being a, a prominent theme but like it's not boring <laughs> yeah so I will add to that. This is another thing that this is an Eber quote that I got was he called it a low rent thriller from the first frame. This is one of those identical movies assembled out of familiar parts from other better movies. So there's a couple of things to unpack with that. For one, what fucking movies like that's just like something he pulled out of his ass. Like other better movies. Okay. The the thing yeah, with that it's is so uniquely like original. It really is unlike any movie. Like of all absolutely. the things to say, he says all the stupidest shit all the time, like boring and pieces of better movies that doesn't make any sense. 
Yeah, precisely. And that's what I mean. Like, this is a pretty unique movie in its premise and and how it how it pans out to to say that it's basically it's not like a slasher that's just like a carbon copy of a carbon copy you know that would be it, i would agree with him if that was the case like if it was you know another fucking friday the 13th or the mutilator or any of these all movies that i love because it's like listening to punk rock or hardcore. Like I just, I don't necessarily need you to reinvent the fucking wheel every time. I just want you to make the thing I like the way I like it. And so this is just him taking a fucking cheap shot at the movie by saying that it's like generic and whatever. When it, it definitely is not generic. The whole movie's premise is completely batshit. So fuck you, Ebert. Yeah, he he's way off fucking base. Uh, surprise, surprise. Um, but delightfully, we have a Danzig review here. Yes, we do. We, we, we did we, not plan this. We didn't just like pick one that Danzig reviewed. You sent this to me and I couldn't make I couldn't fucking believe it. Well, so let me say I was actually aware of this review. before. Were you? I, okay, I had no idea. No, I had seen it. And the reason why just a, a little aside, because we're both Indiana natives or at least yeah. I'm assuming like you're from you're originally from Indiana, right? Yeah, I've lived here for like at least 20 years. Yeah, so, you know, just a little aside for the listeners. Uh, I lived in Indianapolis for seven years. I'm originally from Fort Wayne, Indiana, and Pat uh, is a current resident, a longtime resident of Indianapolis. The point I'm trying to get to is there is an Instagram account called This Day in Danzig. Yes, and. Right. And how this ties into the Indianapolis talk is it's actually ran by former Indianapolis hardcore uh, celebrity Ryan Downey, the singer for for uh, Burn It Down, which I didn't actually had no idea until recently. He posted a picture of himself on that Instagram. And I was like, holy shit, it's Ryan Downey from Burn It from you told me Ryan Burnett Downey is the curator of this Dan Danzig and so that was actually where I saw this review he made a post uh, about it so and there you go so brilliant you want me to read what he said yes and and without further ado please tell everybody what did uh (laughs) Mr. what what did Uncle Glenn say about this movie (laughs) Uncle Glenn said Halloween 3 doesn't even deserve a full review this one sucks and the night he came home he should have visited Deborah Hill and John Carpenter boom (laughs) so there you go and so again to to kind of take jabs at Danzig similar to Ebert in terms of their hot take on this movie I think it's funny and okay I will say this I don't know what Danzig's like later opinion of this movie would be, I would feel like it would have evolved just based off of the fact that he had a band called Sam Haynes, Sawan, whose whole premise is built around what basically this movie is kind of talking about this, like worship of Halloween or the, the Halloween season. And, you know, they talk about in the movie, like, 
that you know that the the druids are trying to pay homage and sacrifice you know to the the season or the gods of Sawen. so the fact that he just like flat out shunted this movie you know out of like any sort of like you know critical like sort of assessment is pretty bizarre to me i feel like it was 82 so would he he would have still been in the misfits he, he wasn't necessarily for for punk rock people he wasn't really that young at that point he was probably in his mid to late 20s he was an older guy in, in that scene but still he was still a pretty young guy and maybe he was just so dedicated to the aesthetic and craft of B movies and whatnot of a certain ilk because he comes from that whole like that's his whole persona is developed from 50s and 60s B movies yeah I've movies and things like that so I don't know something was going on in Danzig's life right there where the, the stars didn't align for him to be in this movie but I I feel like it's a little odd that he hated it this much. Well, and just like Ebert, he says, uh, well, just like Ebert saying nonsense shit, he says, the night he came home should have been visited by Deborah Hill and John Garbiner. They literally produced and fucking got everything to do with this movie as well. (laughs) Right. So, yeah, he... It's just an ill-informed opinion, he but was, it's delightful. God, I, I wish he reviewed every movie that we did. He, he was super bummed. Um, Deborah Hill and John Carpenter really let him down with that one. I'm sorry. Um, I did want to say one other thing, though. Sorry not to, to, uh, to, uh, to really focus on Ebert too much, but another thing that I did notice about Ebert's assessment of this, and this is a thing that I have kind of picked up over, over time and reading Ebert's reviews is he gets fixated on female leads in movies. Uh, and particularly I've noticed with movies that he hates, cause he did the same thing with fast times at Ridgemont high where it's almost like this creepy uncle thing. And he like will f- fixate on the female lead and be like, she did great and she's beautiful and all this. And he'll say all this shit, even though like he thinks the movie sucks. And he did this with this movie. He did it. He did it with, um, what's her name? Uh, I got to Ellie's character, the actress that plays Ellie. Yeah. Stacy Nelkin. He, he like said like, Oh, she, her voice is so, sonorous or some sort of language like that where he was trying to say like she deserved better um than this movie and like i said he's done that shit before and it just kind of like like i said it it smacks of being like a a creepy uncle thing where you know it's like in his conscience he wants to bang that actress so (laughs) You know, he wants, he, <laughs> he wants to, he, he hopes that, that they will be saved from this pile of shit, you know, in their acting career that they, that they had to endure apparently. So anyways, that's another thing about him. Yeah. He's an idiot. <laughs> yes. So there we go. Um, let's, let's dig into the movie then. That's what we're here for.
liked a lot of stuff about this movie. I tell you what, I could probably go on and on about it, but like, you know, really just from, from the get go, this movie to me is, it is in a lot of ways, the ultimate Halloween movie. And I don't mean like Halloween is in the series, but at the season, like the, the feeling you get the aesthetic and I have a lot of, um, I feel like nostalgia attached to this movie because I'm not positive, but I think I might've seen this movie first of all the Halloween movies. I remember distinctly seeing it in the eighties when I was younger and that intro with the minimalist synth soundtrack and the, 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 the pixelating Atari uh, jack-o'-lantern image that, you know, forms on the screen to me, like, again, from, from the jump, it just like grabs, grabs me and, and, and I'm in. So that's one thing I really like. Yeah. I think, um, I, I'm not sure if I saw it first, um, in the, in the scope of the Halloween movies, but like you said, it it, ev- it somehow evokes Halloween more so than the Michael Myers movies. Right. Um, That's how, again, it feels to me. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it evokes a more of, of the true essence of Halloween more. And this is something we n- didn't even mention, but the, this doesn't even feature Michael Myers, but it's, it's called Halloween three and it has nothing to do with, with Michael Myers. Um, right. And we'll get into that a little later when we do some of the research. But um, yeah, in terms of good, you're saying just the overall aesthetic Halloween feel of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, I have that on my list of good things as well. Right. And I mean, obviously, it, the first Halloween, they do this where, you know, it 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 shows people trick-or-treating and it has an autumnal vibe to it. Um, so it, you know, again, it has that, but the fact that it just really emphasizes on the culture and right of dressing up as a child, you know, and going out that night to, to trick or treat. And again, that's why to me, it, it, it is such a, you know, a uniquely Halloween movie. And it just, again, returns to these at least American, very American themes of what Halloween is and, you know, um, and why it's an, it's an important day for children to, you know, celebrate when they're yeah. growing up, which is funny and, you know, a bit ironic that it turns that whole idea on his head. It makes this very fun, joyous occasion as being this, doomsday nightmare scenario for children and families. So purposely. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's a big thing that, that definitely, you know, makes this movie and has always made this a cool movie to me. I never, I, I I was never a, you know, a fair weather Johnny with this movie. I've always liked it. I never paid attention to other people thinking that it was a piece of shit or cared that it was, not within the Michael Myers mythos. Like to me, like, honestly, if I, if I had it my way, I would have liked it if they could have kept going with this 
kind of anthology premise instead of driving the Michael Myers thing into the ground, which I'm fine with that too. But like, I just feel like it just would have been, you know, way cooler to have a different movie representing different themes come out. Like they were saying like a twilight zone, but, or like, you know, a a night gallery or whatever, tales from the crypt thing, you know, that came out every few years or whatever. Yeah. And we were going to touch upon that a little later, but um, I guess to briefly put that out there, this, the intention of this movie was originally to be uh, an anthology series based on um, Halloween, uh, like movies that take place um, around Halloween. Uh, And this was supposed to be the first spinoff of that. Um, And it was tagged as the third Halloween movie called season of the witch um, and thrown out there. And it, it was basically set up for failure from the jump, right? Having been given that uh, name, you know, being given the name Halloween three, people just expected Michael Myers and when they didn't get it, or maybe waited all the whole movie for him to come out. Maybe I have no idea. Yeah. Got pissed. But uh, like you, I, I never, I, I saw this and I actually didn't know that, uh, people were were mad about it until well after the fact, but you know, I didn't see it and until, you know, 15 years after it was out of theater. So sure. uh, I also don't have the perspective of going to the theater to see it and, and having that angry experience that maybe dancing, maybe he saw it in theaters. It was pissed. I don't know. Right. Who knows? He was expecting a, another Michael Myers movie, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll touch upon more of that uh, a little later, but, um, yeah, keep going with your, with your good, uh, good. Also, it's a fairly gory movie and it really is. like in gory in weird ways, not just like your run of the mill slasher type of ways. And one of the main ways that it's super gory is with, again, like we talked about this in the intro with the, the, reaction that the masks um create from the 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 human victim when um they're basically they're set off or they're they're triggered and that's to create you know uh all of these different like vermin and creatures to to spill out of the the person's body and uh we get the first uh indication of that when the uh the woman in the uh in the motel yes she uh accidentally triggers the (laughs) the mask's mechanism by by taking apart the uh the capacitors or whatever in the tag and it sets off a laser that just fries her fucking face and and then from her charred remains these insects start crawling out it's the so best sequence in the movie it's it's so good i mean again like that combination of things to create the death in people is is bananas to me but yeah the gore is fucking great um I uh I ranked um at least there's let's see one two there's at least six different instances that I that I checked that were key key gore scenes throughout the movie. 
Um, so it definitely doesn't lack any of that um, and any sort of brutality. And of course, the main idea that they're killing children. I mean, <laughs> like, yeah, let us, let us uh, be be uh, clear here that that's yes. the whole premise of the movie. Yeah, the whole premise is to kill children, and and so. Well, I, well, and yeah, we'll get into this later. There was some commentary about that as well. Um, so yeah, so the the gore is definitely there, and again, the, just the fact that the whole movie kind of takes place under this cover of night as well. There's not a whole lot of daylight through the movie, so no, not at all. Yeah, so and then um, the the soundtrack soundtrack. Anybody that goes into watching a John Carpenter related movie is guaranteed to expect a really cool soundtrack. And like I said earlier, this is an Alan Haworth, uh, John Carpenter collaboration. They collaborated also on Halloween two and on Christine. And like I was saying, there's these musical motifs that you even notice in this movie that I feel like even appear in Christine. So it's like, it's cool that they, they have these these key uh, musical themes that they they return to throughout every project. That you know, instantly when you hear them, you know that it's these two guys making the music for that movie. So it's fucking great, and a lot of it, um, a lot of it elicits like <laughs> they they call them false startles. Yes, like it's supposed to kind of elicit like. Uh, uh, it's like a jump scare without a jump scare. It's like a jump scare via the music. So it's like more subconscious, but it's great. And it's riddled throughout the entire movie subconsciously gives you like an ominous kind of jumpy vibe Mm -hmm. and it works. It totally works. Yeah. Um, Also (laughs) the idea of taking Stonehenge from its original, you know, site (laughs) And being able to somehow now, granted, you know, part of Stonehenge, yeah, part of Stonehenge, but still, you know, again, like just taking a part of Stonehenge would be a pretty significant feat. Now, the villain <laughs> in this movie is a, a a millionaire. He's 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 a mega rich. He's more of a Bond villain than he is any sort of horror movie. He's totally a Bond villain. This is like a Bond villain plot. Yes, totally. It's funny. Yeah, that's 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 a good way to to frame him. And so yeah, because he just is able to extract the resources that he needs that would be like you know priceless, <laughs> and be able to like uh, to smuggle it over this extremely long distance um, to, to set it up to en- enact his, his grand plot. That to me is just insane. Um, and the, the fact that it's just like, not only is he using this ancient quote unquote technology, this, this ancient religious artifact in tandem with modern technology with computers and broadcasting to achieve this goal again that's the thing about this movie it just like keeps returning to this idea of synthesizing all these like different ideas into this one um uh crazy story 
So it's big technocracy vibes, big technocracy vibes. Yes, indeed. But I had that written down too. All I put down was more movies need Stonehenge based weaponry. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's essentially, yeah. It's like he's creating a laser, a James Bond, uh, (laughs) bad guy weapon using Stonehenge and microchips. (laughs) Exactly. Anything else on your end? Um, I thought the tagline was maybe the dope, one of the dopest taglines I've ever fucking seen for a movie. The night no one came home. Yes. Again, referring oh. to the tagline of the original movie. That is so good. Um, you touched upon everything else. I, I had Marge Gutman face melting scene. More movies need Stonehenge based weaponry. The tagline, Don, the Don Post special effects, and just kind of how the movie is conceptually super unique and i uh, outside of being heavily influenced by invasion of the body snatchers um it it, it it's it's different than invasion of the body snatchers but it, it does borrow a lot of the same components um but the end game is a lot of different obviously mm-hmm. yeah well yeah no that's all i got for good we can uh move on to bad Okay. If you have any bad, it sounds like you may not have any bad. No, I've got, I've got some bad. Good. Um, so <laughs> nothing like too like scathing, but like, I, I guess one thing is the relationship between Ellie and Chalice. I extrapolated that a little larger, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So like the fact that, you know, for one, he just drops all of his responsibility. He's a doctor. He's a fucking doctor and he's a husband or ex-husband and and father. So he has pretty large responsibilities in his domestic and professional life. And the fact that he's willing to drop all of that and go on this adventure with this woman that he barely knows that he very, very soon engages in in a romantic relationship with that to me. Like, I I don't know why that needed to happen at all. Um, Or at least there, I feel like there should have been some more development in that area. Um, So that was always a little bit of like, eh, I could do without that. Yeah, absolutely. I put bad dad, bad dad, <laughs> terrible bad dad. dad. Can't even fucking be there for Halloween. Doesn't right. even try. Uh, <laughs> the functioning alcoholic doctor, which I don't know how that even works. Mm-hmm. He's constantly ripping shots. He's got that six pack of beer that he puts on top of the, the payphone right before he joins Ellie in the car. Like, yeah, he, in his free time, he's at a bar by himself. Right. Um, which was, if there was a, it, you know, this is the bad category, but yeah, bad slash badass, really. I mean, yeah, you can, <laughs> depending on your perspective. Perspective. Yeah. Because, because totally shitty dad, though. Yeah, is he's he's a a drunk philandering dad because not only is there the relationship he has with Ellie, but he also apparently has this side thing going on with the the clinician that he's keeps calling i didn't fucking understand yeah, <laughs> back that, to that the was, hospital that which, was my put on my questionable i didn't understand it right so there was that whole thing going on also in relation to her uh kind of bad 
kind of what the fuck moment was when she's analyzing the debris that they uh, get from the scene where the 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 drone set himself on fire in the car and she's kind of sifting through it and look at it and she's like yeah i couldn't find any uh any sort of human remains but i did all i can find is these car parts and it's like clearly they're not car parts they're they're just like these tiny springs and cogs and and things like that so yeah, There's no mechanic. No mechanic there you for fucking sure. Fucking know the difference. Um, trying to think, um, what a, what else would be a bad? I mean, I put um, mild workplace sexual harassment doesn't age very well. Yes, uh, he spinks that nurse on the ass and is like, "Hey, if I wasn't married, I don't know." Yes, that's like was in a 2019 lens, not great. No. Even- that- Tom Adkins can't pull that off. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I did think of uh, uh, one other uh, big, big thing is honestly, aside for, from, so, I mean, the action ramps up pretty quickly, like right from the beginning, there's the, there's the exchange between the, the clones and the, uh, and Ellie's dad. And then it proceeds to the, um, the part where the drone comes in and kills him and then sets himself on fire, self immolates himself on the car. But I feel like there's a pretty long drag in terms of, uh, uh, development and, 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 uh, story between then and when they get to San Santa Maria, it feels like it kind of drags a little bit. Um, but really, again, it's not so much that like, I, I, I find myself like wanting it to, you know, pick up the pace a little bit, but that's just another thing I noticed when I watched it this last time. So that's a good one too. Yeah. Cause I, there is that lull. Mm-hmm. Um, I also put bad plan. I don't really get the evil plan. Um, the planets align like every 300 years and this is used as a sacrificial witchcraft ceremony of some kind, mm-hmm. but I'm not, it's not made entirely clear as to why they're killing uh, off a bunch of children. I, it's a bad plan. I don't yeah. really get it. Um, yeah. They, they don't ahead. really clarify that very much other than it's like, it's supposed to be a sacrifice to the gods. They give that, like he has like that small speech where he kind of explains it. And Tommy Atkins is like giving one liner responses to it. And that that's all like the information we're given about it. So the the grandiose the grandiose nature of killing all the children in the world isn't made abundantly clear, so that's kind of weird. But um, to piggyback off of that, I also thought the android henchmen were just kind of useless, bad at their job. I think we went over this in Running Man: people being bad at their job. The <laughs> android henchmen are just kind of fucking useless. They're like easily killed. That like car, yes. that one at the beginning is smashed between two cars, which couldn't have been going any slower into each other yeah they're they're fairly easily dispatched but maybe that could be with i mean even though conal cochran is a millionaire he's probably frugal and he he can't put a lot of money into 
you know, the, the quality of his clones and his androids. No, no. He's got to cut the budget somewhere. Yeah. So he makes these cheap, replaceable. Yeah, you can't have a fucking giant underground lab with like the goddamn NASA computers and shit. Um, (laughs) If all all, your whole budget's going to Android replacement. Yeah, everything's going into Stonehenge weaponry microchip shit. So like, I get it. Um, It may cut somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, And that goes into my, I had a, that we can go into questionable because, um, uh, so good, bad, questionable. We're on questionable. Mm-hmm. What questions did you have? So one thing I noticed with the characters that um, Ellie and Chalis encounter as soon as they get to Santa, Santa Mira, some like the maybe the locals, but then also there's, you know, there's Marge and then there's the Cupfer family that are there for business. One thing I kind of wondered was if you notice there is definitely like this ham overacting that's happening with all of those kind of like secondary characters. And I didn't know if that was intended to be like kind of an, a foreshadowing or an ominous, um, you know, sort of uh, mechanism that, the director chose or whether it was just bad acting. <laughs> I mean, the combination between Marge Gutman and the Cupfer family is fucking insane. They both come in like, like bulldozers into that hotel scene. Yeah. They're like all checking in at the same time. Mm-hmm. Marge is on 11 and the Cupfer family's on fucking 20. The wife, the, the Cupfer wife it just has, She's like acting in a different movie. Like she's, yeah. <laughs> her lines aren't even relevant to like what the hell is going on. Yeah, um, yeah. That, I guess that would we could throw that into bad and questionable because. <laughs> yeah, it, so I was really trying to suss that out. Yeah, like I'm like, again, is it, are they just supposed to be like parodies? Or are they supposed to be caricatures of like what would be considered like middle America and? type of you know people and it's not clear why marge is there she says something to the effect of our fucking uh, like our orders didn't come through again mm-hmm. so it, she has like a small shop in san francisco i don't i'm not sure why she's there is she a worker at the factory is she picking up an order i don't even know like i don't know <laughs> yeah i just assume that she's like the manager or a lead at some place like some shop and you know because maybe i don't know business isn't getting done over the phone so she's got to go be an emissary to to deal with it in person i'm not really sure it was, that, that whole thing was confusing yeah yeah so and obviously like the whole situation with the Cupfer family i feel like it kind of it ha- it has this kind of similarity to even Willy Wonka, like in terms. Yeah, of- <laughs> that's a great that's a great point. It yeah. very much so was a fucking family out of Willy Wonka. Yeah, so those were a couple questionable things. Um, well, also I guess another big plot hole would be um, the fact that there's this entire town that is under surveillance and on lockdown, and no one has bothered to 
inform the authorities or there's nothing, there's no sort of like indication that, you know, anybody would see that something is amiss to be able to investigate what's happening there. It's a goddamn six o'clock curfew. <laughs> right. Well, uh, and, and, and on that note too, there was another thing I did notice with the, the, with the six o'clock clock curfew is after that is announced, um, you see Chalis going from his motel room to like a corner store. That's and another question I had. He was just out and about. I was just out and about. I thought the whole town shut down. This is him and the bum. <laughs> and then the people at the shop. And they had like, Tom Atkins sneaks out after curfew to get booze. That's all he right. was doing. But again, if there's a curfew, why is there there's an exception for the shop? I could see why he's out. Because he's a bad boy. He's a rule breaker. But how the fuck is he buying liquor? If it's curfew at six, there's not a store that's open. Exactly. Yeah, that that didn't make sense. Um, Rapid fire questions for you. Mm -hmm. What pheromones is Atkins giving off that makes every female in this fucking movie want to fuck him? It's the strangest fucking thing. He's a ladies man. Yeah. I mean, he's got that. It's just the, uh, the, the Atkins effects. I'll chalk it up to that. Yeah. Um, I will say that I, we, my wife and I met Tom Atkins uh, and he was a consummate gentleman. So I believe it. He seems like he's he'd the be kind a of guy. Like he does the Keanu thing where he, uh, he, we were, he was in the middle and he like put his arms out, but did not like put his arm on my wife or anything. <laughs> like, you know, you see that Keanu thing where he takes pictures with females, but doesn't like, doesn't come in contact with them. Yeah. Like he, did that thing because he's a, <laughs> the goddamn gentleman. Yeah. Um, which I wouldn't have cared either way. But uh, this takes place on the West Coast. Yes. In so California. everyone's fucked. Everyone's already dead then. Because if this plan has been enacted, then all children in the Midwest and beyond are, and the East Coast are dead then by now. Yes. So that's a really big glaring plot hole is how did this um, plot not get subverted you know because it has to cross a four-hour time zone because then i thought maybe he's only saving california he's one of two things he's only concerned with saving his children and or his community slash california's children or this is a california centric movie but they make it very clear that this is a worldwide epidemic that they're shipping out these mats everywhere so Basically, everyone is dead by the time any of this shit happens. Yeah. So again, like he he's calling a station to have them not broadcast a commercial. That's another question that I'm not even going to get into. What you talked to a fucking program director, right? Who are you talking to to get this order? Uh, you know, I have no idea that that whole thing. I was like, is he on the phone with the program director? Also, why is the program director just going to lose his job? <laughs> like just shutting down the, the fucking networks. Like, because some guy just called him on Halloween oh, night with no authority whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, that so that that shit didn't make a lot of sense. Um this is an unanswerable question, but what other anthology movies could we have seen if this was successful? Um, you know, neither one of us can answer that, but it would have been interesting. Um, yeah. How exactly, cause he insinuates that the children would die with the masks on and that, uh, uh, the viscera that came out of the, um, 
mass would kill the other family members. But how exactly do like crickets and snakes and shit kill? That's how the rest of the, the cup for family dies. Like mm-hmm. he, the child dies with the mask on. And then we're thought we're led to believe that the snake kills the dad. And like, I guess the wife just faints out of just sheer terror. Like, I don't, I didn't understand that part either. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously it shows the, the snake is a poisonous snake and it bites the father. Right. And, and, and so he dies that way. So, yeah. So it's just assumed that like, you know, the children will replace this murderous onslaught of critters yeah (laughs) which that's so the insects as like enemies or weapons is a theme that's explored in other carpenter movies that's true that's a good Um, point so that's yeah to my best guess is you know they they just infiltrate on mass the 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 victim to death. That's a, that's a good point. It's a very carpenter centric um, uh, film tactic to use. Yeah. Um, how does Ellie not stop Tom Atkins uh, from dumping all the computer chips all over the fucking factory <laughs> and killing Cochran? Because he right. wakes her up. We're still led to believe it's still Ellie. She follows him through the factory while he's like turning on the machine, getting the commercial going, grabbing the box of computer chips, dumping them all over. This just goes back to the droids are bad at being henchmen because Ellie literally just followed him through that whole plan, let him kill Cochran and then got into the fucking car and then didn't even turn on Atkins until like well down the road. Yeah. So this thought just came to me with regards to that. Um, So even after they kill Cochrane and they, you know, essentially destroy the, the headquarters that the plan is being dispatched from the plan still is in motion. Right. So that's, what's implied that like, he still has to go and call the, the program director, whatever station to get so my best guess is at that point because i even think that when when cochran dies like he kind of has this gesture or look on his face like that um he's not agonized uh maybe it's because if we're dealing with spiritual supernatural sort of subject matter or like people that are fundamentally immortal like he is that as long as the plan gets dispatched and the sacrifice is made then it doesn't matter if like the people that did it die they're a part of like the sacrifice of the greater the greater good or bad in this case so maybe that is it maybe it's just like you know at that point the the plan had already been put in motion so there's no point in, you know, I don't know. I'm really reaching for this one. I understand what you're saying and I don't. <laughs> right. <laughs> she, she's just a bad henchman. Um, maybe, maybe. Okay. Let me, I'll offer you this one. Maybe it's this, maybe um, it just takes time for her uh, henchman, Sequencing. her henchman programming to fully engage. Now that I buy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Maybe as some sort of like uh, 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 protocol to assimilate the droids into 
human culture that yes. they act human for the first however many minutes of of awakening and yes. before the, the kill switch is engaged there you go okay well we answered that fairly effectively <laughs> and the only other question i had was it's actually a cochran quote that was super curious he says about one of the female androids in the room this was a rare piece german made in munich 1785 i must try and get a replacement what the fuck is going on? One of these droids was made in 1785. Like, I yes. like that it speaks to how old Cochrane is, mm-hmm. which is ageless. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm not, the technology doesn't check out there. I'm not sure that this kind of Android technology was uh, available in 1785 Germany. Yes, that's another questionable moment where, because the the Android or the the, the robot in question is fairly real realistic looking so much of the point that uh chalice is is convinced that it's a resident of the factory because he walks in on her and she's mid she's knitting away and he's like talking to her and then he finds out that she's just a robot but yeah so another thing like the only the only thing i can think to answer that is um (laughs) apparently Cochran was plugged into this underground of like these wizard warlord android makers that were highly advanced at the time. <laughs> you know, and so and no, maybe, I like that. Maybe yeah. there was a scenario where they were so advanced and they kind of gave themselves in at for the time as being satanic or witches, and maybe their kind was uh executed or like destroyed by you know uh, uh, a, f- a fearing populace and Cochrane was able to um, sa- salvage that one specimen from the I don't know so I'll buy, it. I'll that, buy but, that more than the Ellie shit <laughs> <laughs> totally. so do we want to take a break and then get into some of these categories yeah sounds good it's almost time kids the clock is ticking be in front of your tv sets for the horathon and remember the big giveaway at nine don't miss it and don't forget to wear your masks. The clock is ticking. It's almost time. Happy Happy Halloween, 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 Happy Happy Halloween, 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 Happy Happy Halloween, so yeah, I had the same thing. It, the, it's a strange movie. It's not rich with quotes. Go ahead. What's what is so we're not even going to do a top three. What is your favorite quote of the movie? Well, it, it's 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 not very good as a standalone quote. It has to be taken within the context of uh, Cochran's great monologue that he's having with Chalis there when he's talking about. We wrote down mind. the same quote. Just you describing what you're describing. We wrote. I already know we wrote down the same shit. It's it's a joke on the children. 
Yes, exactly. yes. That's the, that's the. I do love a good joke, and this is the best ever. A joke on the children, right? Totally. Does the gnarliest. That, I don't think there's any discussion even needed because there's not that many great quotes, which is crazy. Because Atkins is Captain One Liner. He is I, Captain One Liner, precisely. He doesn't have anything in this movie. It's like, like Night of the Creeps. He that's, is like fucking. Every line is like, well, that is the line of the movie. Oh, that's the line of the movie. He doesn't have that in this. No. And yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. It's like once we get to Night of the Creeps, that's where the Tom Adkins quotable quote compendium is going to unfold because, yeah, like obviously. But yeah, there's really nothing to grab onto in this movie as far as, you know, something anything more than beyond that monologue and what he says is really pulling you in so we agree though that that is that wins the best quote i will give you a runner-up the only other quote i could fucking find that was worth a shit is is the father kupfer guy Mm -hmm. um buddy kupfer he says cochran's (laughs) cochran's an all-time genius in practical jokes he invented sticky toilet paper you know the dead dwarf gag, the soft chainsaw, all his. Yeah. We're, we're led to believe that Cochran was some sort of a practical joker once upon a time. Apparently. Right. Well, I that's... don't even, what's a, what's a soft chainsaw? I don't even, like a, a gag chainsaw that like they chase you out of like haunted houses with. Yes. This is a chainsaw without the chain. But, but like, I don't even fucking know the, the dead dwarf gag. Is that like... <laughs> You know, that old thing, thing. The dead that dwarf gag. Sticky toilet paper. That's Gets them every that's time. That's you know? not even a quote. It's just, it's just more funny. <laughs> but best quote, quite easily. I do love a good joke, and this is the best ever, a joke on the children. It's dark, and it it's perfect for the movie. It, it's just encompasses pretty much everything the movie's about. So we're in agreement there. Yeah, well, the, it goes back to also... I think that is a pretty cool idea um, embedded in the movie that like Cochran is this like evil prankster. <laughs> but he's not consenting with the children's um, uh, when they're say when they say trick or treat, he's not consenting that they said treat. He's just giving them trick. So yes, there exactly. goes the, the big dick bond villain shit again. Yes. I do love a good joke. And this is the best ever a joke on the children. There's a better reason. You don't really know much about Halloween. You thought no further than the strange custom of having your children wear masks and go out begging for candy. So there we go. Um, Directorial trifecta. Well, I mean, there's definitely that with... Tommy Lee Wallace. Um, this was particularly interesting, and I had two answers, but mm-hmm. um, one of which ignores directorial stuff, right? And the other one is strictly directorial. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, looking at his filmography, I, I it's hard to argue against Halloween three, Fright Night two, and It, the original It. Yeah, uh, that's pretty much solidified as the best three things he did. There's a movie snuck in there. So it's, it's a cheating kind of trifecta. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think it's between Halloween three and Fright Night two, but for the most part, those three movies were back to back to back. And then if you don't do movies he directed, he plays Michael Myers in the closet in the original Halloween and edited Halloween and played various ghosts in the fog and then directed Halloween three. So that was back to back to back his involvement in Halloween, the fog and Halloween three. So between those two trifectas, I actually think I would pick Halloween three, Fright Night two and it because he directed all three. Right. I agree. He's just his um, stock seems to be in, you know, being, as you said, one of Carpenter's kind of henchmen and also directing. He's a Carpenter android. He he's yes. And uh, what I would add to that, I can't remember if was it the last time we brought this up or maybe when we were just having a conversation about doing this uh, episode, um, his involvement with Max Headroom. Yeah, I saw that again. What the hell? It, it was that again? Because I didn't know if it was something that came up with somebody else. or That came up in the Running Man discussion. Okay. The Max Headroom shit came up again because of, okay. the, because of the director of, of Running Man having a Max Headroom fucking link. Okay. See, I wasn't sure. But if that's yeah, the case. I saw that. I saw that's that. That's crazy. So this is, this is interesting. And I feel like, you know, if this we need to follow this to its logical conclusion and eventually talk about Max Hedrum more. I know that you said you really don't remember it that I've much. Never seen it. I'm only vaguely familiar with the aesthetics of it. Yeah. Well, I remember watching it as a kid and I remember really liking it a lot. It's a pretty bizarre show. And like I was telling you without doing any research, I can't remember if it's the chicken or the egg sort of situation. If Max Headroom came first and then the uh, Coca-Cola commercials or vice versa. Yeah, we talked about that. Um, I believe in the, in the running man episode, yeah. we couldn't remember which came first. Cause I'm only familiar with, with the commercials. Right. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure the commercials came first and they did a spinoff of the character into a whole series. That makes it, more sense. And yeah. it was a pretty cool series, despite its origins being kind of hokey and fucking corporate. I remember it being pretty like Blade Runner-esque in, it, in its um, theme and aesthetics. It was just like... Um, dystopian urban wasteland cyberpunk sort of uh and that's why we were talking about it with running man because mm -hmm. they're both kind of dystopian 1980 uh, orwellian 1984 kind of visions right so i will add that um to tommy lee wallace's um quiver of things that he's been involved with <laughs> so crazy you look like further into his career like especially past it there doesn't really seem to be anything that i give a no, shit it is a wasteland after it there there's a bunch of stuff bunched up writing um writing amityville 2 which i really love i think it's super underrated mm -hmm. and then his involvement in various carpenter uh, stuff assault on precinct 13 and right fog and halloween and then directing it and Fright Night Part Two, which is another. He basically made his his bread and butter there in the '80s was just uh, sequels. I mean, sequels. writing writing the Amityville Two, and then uh, directing Fright Night Two, and then directing Halloween Three. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that coupled with the It movie uh, made for TV series was 
that's got to be his the top of his mountain. Which is interesting to think about characters like him and that you know seemed to have a lot of promise at one point and just really sputtered out and that was all they had in them apparently is you know working on a, a few key projects and and then that's it because um it looks like he hasn't done anything really at all since the early 2000s i will say in the 90s <laughs> My mom is like a true crime uh, fucking addict. She made, and this was recent and I shit you not. She made me watch uh, uh, and I could only find it on YouTube. I couldn't find it. I literally couldn't find a copy of it anywhere. Mm-hmm. I searched online everywhere. I only found it on YouTube in seven parts, a movie called, and the sea will tell. Okay, and in the beginning, it. it said directed by Tommy Lee Wallace. And I knew we were doing this episode next. My mind fucking exploded. I was like, this can't be the same person. It is like the shittiest of, of <laughs> made for TV true crime shit. It's so bad. It, it's, it's not great. Mm-hmm. But come to find out, he totally directed it. And when I was looking at his filmography, I was like, holy mother shit. It, and the sea will tell us out there. My mom loves that movie. She's like, she like quotes that movie. So I recently watched and the sea will tell it is over three hours long. It is so (laughs) long. And it's not even that interesting of a true crime story to, to, stretch out for three hours. It's like a couple, uh, off the coast of Hawaii gets murdered by another couple and they, they find the bodies in like drums, like offshore. It's, it's not as even as exciting as I just made it sound, but (laughs) I just wanted to give a shout out to, and the sea will tell because I accidentally watched it recently. And I was of like, I was like, of course, Tommy Lee Wallace directed this. This is crazy. So we'll give him credit for, having a movie in Pat's mom's trifecta. Yeah. Her trifecta would be in the sea will tell. And then whatever the fuck was around that. So (laughs) that's, that's her trifecta. That's a lot of Hollywood baloney. Classic werewolf could change shape anytime it wants day and night, whenever it takes a notion to, that's why I call them shapeshifters. So Dick Miller. um, So yeah, the premise of this is us finding a character in a movie that, um, you see time and time again, um, and you know, unless you're more voracious and nerdy like people like us, you're like, it's that guy. What have I seen him in? You know, and then you figure it out, and then you see like, wow, that person's been in all these crazy movies, had these bit parts and things like that. So, uh, I'm gonna go ahead and let you have it. What? What was? Who was your dick? in this movie. I, I feel like this is obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I looked at the filmography of most of these people and most people didn't have more. Most people had single digit entries. Yeah. So I had to go with, uh, Conal Cochran, right. uh, played by Dan O'Hurley. Is that how you pronounce his last Her- name? I would, I would assume it's O'Hurley. 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 Dan O'Hurley. Um, who's Andrew Packard in Twin Peaks. He's, uh, one of the, he's the Omni chairman in RoboCop one and two, and he's in this, but outside of that, he's been acting since the forties and has like a million movies. And there's not another single person in this movie where I was like, Oh, them outside of Tom Atkins and Tom Atkins doesn't count for this award. Yeah. Yeah. So 
like you said, he is kind of the obvious one, um, notably for people like us, because he plays the old man in the RoboCop, uh, yeah. the first two RoboCop movies, uh, the, the, the CEO of uh, um, Omnicorp. Yeah, Omnicorp. And uh, so, yeah. And like you said, he has this, this huge... Um, Ouvre bef- uh, before this, where he was basically like he was a classically trained Shakespearean sort of yeah. you know actor that played um, in a lot of like TV shows and movies, and you'll see this again time and time again with a lot of these '70s and '80s movies where you have a lot of these actors from you know the the '50s and '60s and, and uh, even before these classic classically trained actors that somehow end up in these cult B C Z grade <laughs> movies for whatever reasons. Um, but yeah, so this is another instance of that where he ended up in this movie. And so he's not my guy. I actually, I'm going to, I'm going to get to my guy or actually I'm going to, I'm going to have two people when I get to this, but, but I do want to like um, kind of talk about him because Aside from Tom Atkins, his role and his acting in this movie is one of my favorite things. I love how he portrays the villain. He oh, he's great. fucking does it perfectly. Like he is an amazing villain. And again, that like translates to um, RoboCop, where he, again, he's he is a villain in RoboCop. The yeah, but it's like a little bit more complicated because um, he's made somewhat sympathetic because um, in the end, he's not like the bad, bad guy. There's a guy that has an even more devious motive. He's one of those old corporate guys that thinks that truly by bringing capitalism to the world, he's doing good. Yeah, he's just telling the party line. Right, exactly. So, um, And going in the spirit of the award, he's in this fucking movie for like 10 minutes of screen time. I mean, yeah, he, does, he, he doesn't even show up uh, maybe an hour into the movie. And then yeah. he has some sequences here and there, but maybe 10, 15 minutes of screen time. Yeah. So, and, that's, and that's the essence of Dick Miller. Mm-hmm. is he's other than bucket of blood, which we've, we've gushed about privately. Oh, no pun intended. No, no, no gush, gush pun intended. <laughs> um, he never really, he, he is in every movie that he's in for like five minutes. Right. So yeah. True. Go ahead. Yeah. So if you pick him, who, I'm curious. What's that? Oh, so <laughs> Nancy keys, who plays Linda Chalice. Um, she also um, had roles in the first Halloween. That's a good choice. Yeah. And the fog. And it's funny um, because <laughs> they're so on, uh, on the timeline of movie making, there's only a four year period between the first Halloween and this movie. And she makes a substantial jump in age apparently between the two, because in Halloween, she plays a teenager. She's Lori Strode's friend. And I'm drawing a blank on her, her name in the movie right now. And then in this well, it's not Lori Strode or PJ souls. I don't know who the fuck it is. Cause right. I don't know who the other two are, but in, in Halloween, she's the, the 
the the friend that ends up getting uh garroted in her car Aww. in the garage um <laughs> but in this movie she plays for all intents and purposes um a mid-30s xy yeah, that that's crazy she pulls it off though because she goes she from seamless teenager to i didn't know i didn't know that was her so yes. I, I she goes from seamless teenager in in what that's three years apart three oh, years like yes, that's what I mean. yeah yeah. So later she plays a d- divorcee mother of two. Right. That's great. Good so that's her. that. Um, and then real quick, I, I wanted to, to also talk about Al Barry who plays um, the father, Harry, the father of Ellie. So this guy, I found out he plays um, Dr. Gruber in reanimator. And if you're familiar with Reanimator, that is the opening sequence of the movie is um, uh, Herbert West has injected his uh, his. Uh, and he's just like the German guy. Yeah, he has injected Dr. Gruber, who is his mentor with the reagent. And Holy it goes shit. it goes horribly wrong. And he his eyes um I did not know that was him. Holy yes. crap. That's the same guy. His eyes prolapse from his skull and he dies. And that's the opening of the movie. And that, yeah, he's not in the rest of the movie. No. So that's but the same guy. The character is referenced. Yes. Throughout Reanimator. Yeah. Yes. So Al Barry, who plays again. That's plays another Al. good one. So who you pick between the two? I would say Nancy, just because I, I, I see her in more movies. Like, and Barry is your runner up. This that I just recently made that connection that that was the same guy. That's a great runner-up. I think for the purposes of this, yeah, I think you have to go with uh, with Nancy. Yep. So there you go. There, that's my dick. You found your dick. We, I found my dick. We found our dicks. Fantastic, and <laughs> all is well. We can proceed forward now that we are no longer dickless. Uh, <laughs> uh, who would you replace in this movie with our dear friend, respected, now deceased veteran character actor, Harry Dean Stanton? I think you might love my idea. <laughs> okay. I would replace Ellie Grimbridge. I, with- I had a feeling that's what you were going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Not because I want some like, uh, homoerotic uh, extended lovemaking scene between Tom Atkins and Harry Dean Stanton. That would be lovely. Yes. Yeah. But I think, I truly think if you were to replace Ellie with Harry Dean Stanton, you change the components of this movie in a way where you get rid of this totally inane lovemaking scene, which adds nothing, does nothing. nothing does nothing. And you replace it with what would essentially be a buddy cop movie. <laughs> yes. You get like a fucking disgruntled Harry Dean Stanton and an alcoholic Tom Adkins together. <laughs> that's so much of a better pairing than this really odd chemistry between Ellie uh, as she exists now. I think if you, you got rid of her altogether and maybe say the character at the beginning was Harry Dean Stanton's brother or something. Right. I think you pretty much have a, a complete workaround to get rid of Ellie. Side note though, Ellie might be the hottest fucking female in a horror movie that I've seen. Maybe top five. <laughs> She's a babe. 
she is a she is a babe times ten. So I don't want to take her out of this. There's a reason why Roger Ebert apparently had a secret boner for her. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I get his boner, but I still want to keep your boner in your pants. <laughs> but I would replace Ellie with Harry Dean Stanton. What about you? Well, you know, this woman was a tough one for me. It, and, it is tough. And I'm and when you started talking about yours, I saw where you're going with it and I thought that was perfect, like the whole buddy cop thing. I mean, other than that, my choice would have to be you know, replacing um Dan O'Hurley, but like again, this is a situation where he does it so well, plays the villain so well, and like, you know, I honestly personally never can place Harry Dean Stanton in a in a purely evil villainous role. No, he would not do great in that role. Yeah. So I'm just gonna side with you on this, man. I think you knocked it out of the park with that one. You know, we gotta make this happen somehow. Re reanimate his body, get Tom Atkins. I know he's fucking down. I don't but yeah, we can get this going again. Yeah, with all these remakes and reboots, let's fucking do it right, man. Let's play three part two. Let's use some of that Stonehenge magic. Yes. To yes. bring Harry Dean Stanton we back. Shoot a laser out of fucking Stonehenge into Harry Dean's grave and get him upright again. <laughs> the only other thought I had briefly is to replace him with the homeless person that Tom Adkins runs okay. into yeah. and flushing that character out a little bit. So instead of being a one-off, maybe it's this homeless person that is secretly helping Ellie and Tom Atkins. Um, and he has more of a role than being killed off immediately after that interaction. Cause I could see him being a homeless person. Right. Uh, but I'm going to stick with my Ellie. Uh, well, I think we should elaborate a little bit on that because that was something that we could have discussed in the good, bad and the questionable, honestly. And you bringing that up kind of, might tease this idea out a little bit more that like apparently this wino character has existed in Santa Maria Mira for some time under the, the iron fist like rule of Conal Cochran. And up to that point has had some sort of strange symbiotic relationship with the town. And he knows stuff. He knows stuff. Exactly. He hasn't run afoul of anyone to get, you know, get, killed but then he the minute he runs his mouth to tom atkins then he's dead yeah so that's a whole nother thing where it's like all right like you clearly like are a a, a drunk like you know that can't keep his fucking mouth shut because you just like spilled the beans in front of a complete stranger how is it that 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 sort of like behavior hasn't gotten you fucking exterminated up to this point so yeah that that's a good way to kind of you know maybe develop that a little bit more would be to put hds in there and make him a, a more pivotal character in the storyline he could have been yeah yeah okay good good that was that was a good hds spot the dick uh tandem i liked uh, it yeah well uh 
let's go into a wiki wormhole. I feel like uh, there's some pretty choice little nuggets about this one that we can dive into. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I mean, obviously we already touched upon some of them. Um, some uh, that I would like to lead off with is uh, for one case anybody didn't notice the theme song uh the silver shamrock theme song sounds uh pretty noticeably familiar to most people and that would be because it is the same melody as london bridge is falling down the reason why that was used is because it was public domain and you know they could just steal it and just you know just map it I right don't know when they used it but yeah i didn't notice that it was london bridge but i didn't know that they could use it like that yeah that, yeah that. so that that's an interesting little tidbit and another one i'll i'll uh uh put out there is so the uh operator during one of the scenes when chalice is he's calling out of the hotel in San, santa mira the operator's voice as well as the voice of the person calling curfew is the voice of none other than Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. Both that's times. One of only two things I put down because that was the most interesting. Yeah, that's exactly what um, I put. That's awesome. I yeah. think that's awesome. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So, I mean, apparently you don't have as much as I do. So go ahead and, and tell me what else you had there. And then... Well, I did some research and I, I didn't include stuff because I knew we would just... Uh, touch upon most of it um as we as we went through the categories and stuff so the only other thing that i pointed out was that santa mira is the um is the fake city in invasion of the body snatchers yeah it's also called santa mira in that movie as an homage to invasion of the body snatchers right not to mention that the theme of people's bodies being taken from them and replaced as androids is very body snatchers ask, but I, I like the idea that they also called the town Santa Mira. Yeah. So that's very cool too. paying homage to the, uh, you know, the, the, the 56th version, the night specifically the right. 1956 invasion of the body. Snatcher. Yeah. Yeah. It's paying homage to those, you know, seminal movies that obviously influenced Carpenter to do what he was doing. Um, very cool there. One thing that I thought was really interesting, and this is something that we could uh, hypothesize and speculate on and have a what if sort of scenario is the original director for this was slated Ooh. to be Joe Dante. Director. No shit. Yeah. Director of Gremlins, The Howling, The Burbs, Inner Space, Piranha, Rock and Roll High School. Like, a man that um, has my main man, Joe, I can't yeah. believe that. I've never heard that. Yeah. So he was, he was originally slated to be the director and then he moved to a different project and they just, they just snuck Tommy Lee Wallace in. Holy there. crap. Not to fit on Tommy Lee Wallace, but that would have been the better movie. Absolutely. hundred percent. So when I saw that, I was like, well, yeah, they really, I think, Aside from the the poor marketing choice that they made that we talked about on how they were going to, you know, roll this movie out, they really blew it by not being able to keep Dante at the helm there. Maybe Carpenter and Deborah Hill felt more comfortable with a uh, uh, an inner circle person. As far as I know, Joe Dante has nothing to do with Joe, uh, John Carpenter. No. That's definitely not a inner circle carpenter guy maybe yeah. they wanted to keep the uh 
Halloween franchise in Carpenter-esque hands. Yeah, in the family. And also, maybe for whatever reason... as far as I know, John Carpenter isn't like some crazy control freak, like some. No, no. And I think I, you would think that they have an amicable relationship. I, don't, I, I have no reason to believe that Joe Dante and, and John Carpenter both hanging and banging, by the way, which is fucking crazy because Wes Craven's dead and George Romero's dead. And there's so many other of those prominent directors that are dead, but they're both going strong, which fills my heart with joy because John Carpenter specifically has been smoking three packs a day for 50 years. So yeah. I can't fucking believe it, but um, yeah, I, 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 that probably wasn't the case in terms of not wanting Joe Dante specifically, but this movie would have had maybe a funnier edge that it doesn't have now. Um, it just would have been better overall in general. Absolutely. I agree. Um, let's see what else. Um, well, I, I feel like we we talked about a lot of these things already. Um, like you said, well, not only was it on Ebert's stinker list, but it was specifically his quote unquote most hated list. So that's that's something. And Don Post, um, as we mentioned, was considered the godfather of Halloween. He created yeah. some of the first latex masks that were rolled out. Um, um, retail and also used in movies. So that's pretty cool that they had. And I read that they actually in the factory, when they were pressing some of those latex, those latex masks went to retail. They retailed for like 25 bucks. They sold the pumpkin, the witch and the, uh, the skeleton head. Yeah. I would, I would really like to have one of those. How much does that shit cost right now? Right. Exactly. You know, selling (laughs) their Halloween three latex mask. Holy shit. Yeah. Um, another interesting thing, um, I brought up uh, co-writer Nigel Neal at the beginning. And um, so Nigel Neal, he actually left the project. Um, and that's where Tommy Lee Wallace stepped in and kind of fleshed out the, the script more. But um, Nigel Neal was a fairly well-known uh, horror director, um, I guess, from from the sixties at that point. And, um, one of his shows or movies called quarter mass was, uh, an inspiration, oh, yeah, yeah. was an inspiration for John Carpenter's, uh, creating that intro sequence to the original Halloween. Yeah. Um, so he was, you know, he was, uh, called upon to, to work on this project, but apparently, um, even though like some of the fundamental aspects of his script were kept, apparently um, for him, it got to be too violent and he, he felt like he, he couldn't stay on the project that his, he was having creative differences with, with uh, John Carpenter and Tommy Lee Wallace. So he ended up leaving the project. Uh, Apparently his original idea was to make it a little bit more silly. Psychological logical but a little bit more silly um and not quite as you know like gory and and sinister as it the uh, the final product ended up becoming so. well and specifically dino de Laurentiis came in and specifically ordered more yes. violent and gore because he read uh neil's version of it and thought it was boring <laughs> yeah 
There was, was that. Like, this could use some more tit. There is no doubt in my mind that he ordered that nude, that the sex scene, the nudity, and more violence. He ordered all of that. That was right. all of him. Yes. But good for him. He came in like a fucking wrecking ball and was like, this needs more tits and blood. So <laughs> that's what we got. That's what we got. And we were, I feel we, you know, we better for it, better for it. So to me, this, this would be most definitely, in my opinion, a midnight movie. You would give it a midnight. You would say 12 a.m. I would say 12 a.m. Wow. I, I have to agree. I have problems giving things perfect ratings. We're not saying that means this is the perfect movie. We just right. mean the closer to midnight, the closer to being a perfect midnight movie exactly yes we, perfect we, movie movie right we need to establish that, that this rating system doesn't necessarily entail any sort of you know like its adherence to um being a cinematically developed movie <laughs> so i have an idea then yeah. we take so we take it as close to midnight as we think it, it fits to being a midnight movie, yeah. but then we take an iconic theme from the movie and we give it a out of five of that. So for instance, for Halloween three, we would give it out of five latex masks okay. or for running man. It would have been, you know, yeah. Five, uh, uh, jumpsuits, whatever. Right. Uh, I was going to say, it's kind of like, um, I don't know, did you do this for the Halloween movie? Like 31 days of Halloween. I always do out of pumpkins. Okay. That's what I was going to say. I thought you did. And I thought Kyle did. So yes, similar kind of prep premise, but yes, using some sort of symbology or icon from the, but every movie we could choose a different iconic thing from that movie and give it out of five. Sure. Sure. So you're giving it a midnight rating. How many latex masks out of five would you give this in terms of how much you like it? I'm going to say three and a half, probably to four, three and a half to four. I would, I will, I will, I normally don't like half ratings, but I will allow half ratings in the purposes of of this podcast because I do think things are in a gray area sometimes. Yeah. Um, I would also give this a midnight rating. I think it's, it's right there. It's the perfect midnight movie. And I would give it three and a half as well. It's not quite four, but it, yeah. it's three. It's three and a half. It has its flaws. Every movie we're going to talk about is going to have its flaws. Mm-hmm. But overall, it's a fucking great time. And every time I watch it, I'm, I, it's it never gets old. I never grow tired of it. Yeah, totally. And again, that right there fulfills the the premise of why we're talking about these movies. Is they are imperfect little gems they are like they're flawed (laughs) sometimes very distinctly flawed gems that we still love to watch 
and we can continue to watch them over and over again. And high replay value. Yeah, high replay value for sure. Um, and movies that maybe, even though, like I said, this movie I feel has kind of come unto its own and has garnered a whole new generation of people that like it, they still, you know, quite don't get the recognition that they deserve. And that's fine. They don't, to me, a movie doesn't necessarily have to get any sort of like, you know, dramatic, like reintroduction to culture and reappraised, you know, to make it cool for everyone. I like the fact that, that some of these, you know, people don't give a shit about. So (laughs) that's the appeal of it, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Um, anything else? Well, I have the movie that we're watching for next time. Ah, yes. Yes. Please tell us what, what's on deck for next time. So a little bit out of the box, but we're going to be doing a lot of sly. So I went with watching, um, cliffhanger. Fantastic. (laughs) So wrap the fuck in. Let's watch some cliffhanger. Uh, in terms of my top five Stallone, I'm not even sure it's in, it's definitely not in the top five. It might be on the very edges of a top 10, but I fucking love cliffhanger and I don't watch it enough, but every replay I have of it, I'm like, why do I not watch this more often? So it's great. I love taking uh, any opportunity to delve into Sly's uh, catalog and and his output, and when John Lithgow as a bad guy in anything is, I'm down. Just sign me, sign me up. If John Absolutely. Lithgow is playing, even as a, even as a good guy, but if John Lithgow is specifically playing a villain, I am in, and it is automatically a midnight movie if he's the villain. Hundred percent, I agree with you there. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about that one too. So, um, yeah, until then, uh, we're gonna be uh, checking out Cliffhanger, and I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And uh, once this, you know, gets fleshed out a little bit more, you know, we'll we'll be able to, you know, provide maybe little bells and whistles to the programming but until then we hope you come back and check out next episode where we'll be watching cliffhanger all right see you then see ya